0: All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. It was
1: interesting because I was in this car getting driven outside of Paris. And first of all, I didn't understand. I got punched right away, so I'd never been physically punched in my life. So I was ringing, my mind was just spinning and and i and i was looking at to my left and and there's this man kind of just screaming and crushing my phone and driving and saying all these nonsense i couldn't really understand what was going on and he was abusive and i could hear like it was just very strange but that blanked out and then i heard a voice and it wasn't my voice. I don't know who's still to this day, it's an inner voice, an, an outer voice, whatever it is, the guardian angel, whatever you want to say it, it is. But the voice said, be exactly like him.
0: Hey there, this is Light Watkins, and you are listening to At the End of the Tunnel, which is the podcast about hope. And what that means is I highlight the stories of individuals who've gone through some very dark moments in life, but they've come out on the other side with some wisdom and courage and insight that they never would have had had they not gone through whatever they went through. And as a result, they become a light unto the darkness for others, which usually inspires them to start a nonprofit or to use their platform or voice or art in a way that helps to improve or positively impact the lives of others. Well, this week's guest is no exception. Her name is Gabriella Wright, and out in the world, she would be known as an actress, a very successful actress who also happens to teach meditation from time to time. But after talking with her, I would describe her as a meditation guru, who is also acting in movies and television from time to time. Gabriella hails from London, where she grew up in a very enchanting childhood. And then in her late teens, she suffered a very dark experience of abuse, which then prompted her to relocate to New Zealand, which is where she happened to discover meditation and spirituality and the inner life. And so this led her to India. And in India, she went deeper into her practice, not realizing that she was being prepared for an even bigger tragedy later on in life, which then made her double down on her commitment to become an advocate for mental health. I don't want to give away too much because it's such a fascinating story and I want you to hear it from her. But everything that Gabriella went through eventually led to her starting a nonprofit called Never Alone, which is a global campaign that she founded with Deepak Chopra, the famous Deepak Chopra. And their mission is to provide anyone who is struggling with their mental health with helpful resources for healing, for getting better. And it's a large mission, but Gabriella is determined. And I think you'll understand why when you hear her story in her own words. So, without further ado, I am honored to introduce you to Miss Gabriella Wright. Gabriella, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It is a pleasure and an honor to connect with you and to dig a little bit into your story, your fascinating story in the creation of Never Alone. As always, I'd like to start the conversations off talking about. Little Gabriella. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you were born in London?
1: Yes, London, UK.
0: So yeah. when you think back to Little Gabriella in London, kind of like your five, six year old memories, mm-hmm. what was your favorite toy or activity as a child, if you remember?
1: An image that came to mind was my dad would always go to play tennis on the weekends. Mm -hmm. That was the time where I got to play with my sister in this kind of the Hackney Marshes. We were in North London. And so we would just run around free. And I have this image of me being barefoot because we were and just free, you know, laughing, smiling, picking up the balls. And for my dad and my dad complaining about us because we weren't tennis women (laughs) we never became tennis champions, you know, that, that freedom and, And I suppose that freedom has always been a feeling that I felt somehow. And when I lose it, I always try and have that feeling again. And I always have an image of me as a little girl smiling and just running and laughing and giggling from my stomach, you know, real giggles. And there's another thing, a favorite activity that I love so much, that's probably the silver thread through my life, is that every night my father would tell stories to us. And he never said it from a book. He would never read a book to us. He would share a story that he invented and we were all characters the three sisters were the characters in the story and we were going to go and save people and there were like dragons flying in there was a giant tomato i spoke going to like squish london and we had to find the remedy and then one of our neighbors got kidnapped by a dragon and and i was always carrying my little sister in the backpack because she was the small one and <laughs> and we would go into this portal through this magic mirror that was actually in our living room It was very interesting because the stories fueled a magical enchantment, and so I was always able to see life through the magic somehow.
0: You had a brother too. Where was he during all of this?
1: So actually, no. So two sisters.
0: Oh, two sisters. Okay.
1: Sisters, and I have a son, and then I call a bunch of men in my life brothers. (laughs)
0: So where was the other sister then? She, are you guys fur, so, further so apart we, in age?
1: We were always yeah. We were all under the same home, so we were like. So I'm the eldest. Pascal Wright is the middle sister. She's in France now, and and Paulette, my personal story of of everything that I'm sure we're going to speak about.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I thought <laughs> I Pascal was a boy that. was a boy's name, but that's cool that it's a girl's name.
1: Yeah, <laughs> she'd like Awesome that, that you say that. She's like, yeah, you see, my name's super cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and your dad was an artist, so of course he was like creative and, and out of the box thinking. What was your mom? What was her situation?
1: So her situation, she was studying marine biology, comes from a scientist' family. most of them are doctors. She's French, Portuguese, Russian, not to generalize, but our family from Indian descent are doctors or researchers or you know they have that, that longing to do research in the medical realm and my mother never wanted to do that but she's she's a scientist by nature so she is always looking at and observing reality from that perspective and she was studying parasites underwater like literally (laughs) so we would have our weekly activities would be when a goldfish dies we wouldn't just be sad about it be like oh this is an interesting offering let's dissect it And so my mother would (laughs) literally be like, "Okay, so these are the eggs. These are the things you see. And there was nothing wrong about it. There was no judgment. It was just like, oh, this is life and this is death. And this is what, you know, the cycle of life is.
0: And you guys grew up Catholic. So was that like really emphasized in the home life? I know like I would grow up in the church and at church you talk about church stuff. But at home, we never talked about church stuff. What What was your household like in that regard?
1: It's a really good question because my father doesn't want to speak about institutionalized God Mm. or institutionalized religion. But because my mother had a Catholic upbringing through the Portuguese and the French, we would never go to my father. I don't think has ever been to a church. That's actually at the funeral of my sister, which is interesting. But we would always say prayer for, for Sundays, Sunday roast because of the sacrifice of the chicken or the lamb that we would be eating. So it's always a sense of gratefulness and sometimes Sunday schools, but I quit because I told them that it was nonsense. I said, Mom, this <laughs> is like, nonsense. like, this is like nonsensical for me. I,
0: where, where, where did they lose you on the walking on the water part or which part did they lose you? On? You
1: know what they lost me on? They lost me on the fact that I needed to feel guilty for like everything.
0: Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> no, literally I was like, okay, mom, I confess that I didn't help you washing up, but I don't need to feel guilty about it, you know? <laughs> so I was like, I was gone. I was like, I like Jesus. I don't understand the rest. <laughs> so I, I left. I mean, I didn't, my mom was just like, she gave up.
0: <laughs> Did your sister, sisters follow in your footsteps in that regard?
1: So my little sister, Paulette, she was actually really religious. And she mm. went, she did the whole Sunday school. She did the whole Holy Communion, the whole Second Communion. And she was really, like, she was handing, you know, holding the candles and dressed in white all the time, literally like a Virgin Mary. She loved that. So, no, they didn't follow my suite.
0: <laughs> Were there any sayings or any sort of lessons that you recall your parents giving you all, all you girls back in those earlier days? Like for instance, my dad used to say, you, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. You always have to work really hard and blah, blah, blah. What were some of the lessons in the, in the right household?
1: Well, my father would always say to me, don't procrastinate. <laughs> so, so it's not even a saying it's like Gabriella, just don't procrastinate. I was like, okay. So maybe that's why I'm so creative now. But I don't think there was ever a saying as in such, but my father, who's a strong, my mother really didn't say anything much when we were growing up. It's only later on that she found a voice where she would express herself. But as a young girls, we would always listen to our father. And, and our father was all about make sure you critically think, make sure you know what you're talking about. Don't repeat if you don't know the source of your information. So we were always taught how to think. I know it's strange to say that, but, and he would always say something, which I pick up all the time now. He would say, don't be like the common denominator, which basically means find your unique experience of reality through sourcing information.
0: Show you how to do that? Or did he Oh yeah, model, model that for you? What, what are some of the...
1: Well, we had debates. We had debates every Sunday and Saturday. The weekend, it was debates, dinner. One of the speakers would lead the table. The other one would play the guitar. We would be arguing. My mom would. Leave. I mean, it's like you learn through that skill. You don't take it personally, anyone. You don't leave the table. But in the beginning, we were all like up in arms, revolutionaries, <laughs> like arguing about politics, social economics, um, geography, religion. Religion. Oh, my God. How much did we argue about that? So yes, so that's how we were taught. We were taught to critically think through
0: debating. What prompted the move to France?
1: My father. So it was a twofold actually. My father, first of all, was very against the foreign policy of it was the Tory government. I think it was John Major at the time in the UK, and he was like, I just don't want to be financing war or contributing to that mindset. And he didn't like what they were doing in the Middle East. And so he was like, I want to go to a country where there will be better education for my daughters, better welfare, as in the state, Providence, healthcare, and everything, and also just better mindset. And so at the time, because my mother's French, we had possibilities to go to France. And my mother was like, OK, let's just go. Although the system is completely different, much more stricter in terms of education. It's, it's a harder education. It's it's very competitive. But that's how we moved. And the second reason was my, my middle sister had constant asthma attacks, which was actually doubled with panic attacks. And so she was in and out of hospital because of pollution. And so they believed that being in an urban environment in the middle of London wasn't good for her. So we moved literally to the countryside in France.
0: And your and mom had been speaking to you all in French, obviously, so you understood French.
1: Actually, she had been speaking to us in French but we were not speaking French back to her. So Mm. when we got to France, I didn't speak immediately. I spoke like a year later. But when I did, I spoke efficiently and and, and immaculately in that sense, but because we had heard it all the time. So, But, yeah, my father still doesn't speak French, by the way. He refuses. He's like, no, I'm speaking English. It's a universal language. We'll all understand it, and it takes a long time to master even one language. Why would I expand? (laughs) I was
0: like, okay, daddy. <laughs> well, that's one way to look at it. What did you see yourself becoming when you were a kid? What do you think would you want to be when you grew up? Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to HappinessInsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode.
1: so remember that sense of freedom that I mentioned, I always wanted to be free. So it was all directed from freedom. So it was like images that would come to my mind, me on a horse riding across South America. And that kind of was like, maybe I can be a, an, an explorer. Maybe I can be someone who goes and explores cultures and, and animals. And I was fascinated with David Attenborough, who's this incredible scientist, basically. And I was just obsessed with what that meant you know but it was always involved with the camera I just didn't realize the camera was there because when you watch the documentary of course there's a camera but I was like oh I want to be an explorer like in front of this camera and like saying stuff to the world and sharing this so I never thought the camera was even an object do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. because even in, in at home we had cameras all around because my father was one of the first to do video installation art in the 70s and 80s and so cameras were just there so it was Mm. like a fork and a knife or a painting it was just part of the environment so I never thought that that was really a job or anything do you understand it was just something that you use and then I got involved in acting but I was only doing it out of magical circumstances because (laughs) I was asked to do I was literally asked to do an improv and I was like what's this oh you pretend that you're I was like oh well daddy's told us so many stories so I can just pretend this and so I did it and the teacher's like oh my god this is what you should do I was like what do you mean what I'm, I'm like nine years old like what is what what am I I'm just creating a story and so that led that trickle down into my experience that there is a stage and that we can be on the stage and we can share that stage with an audience so I started to learn everything of what that meant, whether it's directing, whether it's writing, whether it's speaking or writing. it's all stage work. So that's how I got involved.
0: So your parents, they put you in some sort of acting program when you were a kid?
1: I did it but naturally by just doing it at a theater club at school. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this because I know what to do. And I... I I was very like, Oh, I know what to do, you know, like, Oh, I'm going to do this. And this is going to, you know, this is going to be interesting and we're going to create something magical. So I keep on going to the word magical and freedom because those were really the two words that spun my drive.
0: When you mentioned at 17, leaving a theater school, is that what you're referring to?
1: Yes. Sometimes I still get emotional about it, you know, (laughs) because it's, it's, it's just something that occur. When you tap into something that happened with presence, you are there, even if you transcended all the suffering and all the PTSD symptoms and all of the scars, but when you go back in time. And so now as I travel back in time to when I was 17 and leaving the theater school in Paris because I had decided to to take it to the new level, I was intercepted by someone who I kind of knew, but was a stranger, but someone who had seen me before. And basically they invited me into their car and it was like, oh, I'll drop you home. And that car never went home. That car, yeah, the car left. And what what resulted in that was extreme physical abuse and and extreme violence. And for a girl who has never been brought up like that, to experience something so sudden. And so, I mean, quote, unquote, I'm, I'm using words that I would have said at the time, not how I experienced it sure. at the time. Yeah. So evil, like, what mm-hmm. is this? Why do people exist like this? And it was just a mind-blowing experience of physical, mental abuse. When I say mental abuse, once you're physically raped, it's not the scarring of the body. Yes, that's one thing. But the mind, the mind is like, you know, your, your, your podcast is called The Tunnel with Light. At, right? like, at,
0: the, end of, at the end of the tunnel, yeah, yeah. At
1: the end of the tunnel. So it's interesting because when you're in something like that, that the physical symptoms are not the end of the tunnel. The mental scape is, wow, once you get out of that tunnel, then you're really at the end of the tunnel physical one is Mm. that's that's very impermanent so yeah that was a big shift it changed my whole life
0: you said something really interesting in one of your other interviews that I listened to you said that in that moment you were able to hear an inner voice Mm. which told you to act exactly like him yeah can you talk about that voice you heard
1: I was in this car getting driven outside of paris and first of all i didn't understand i got punched right away so i'd never been physically punched in my life so i was ringing my my mind was just kind of spinning and and i and i was looking at to to my my left and and there's this man kind of just screaming and 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 crushing my phone and driving and saying all these nonsense i couldn't really understand what was going on and he was abusive and I could hear like it was just very strange and but but that blanked out and then I heard a voice and it wasn't my voice I don't know who's still to this day It's an inner voice and an outer voice whatever it is a guardian angel whatever you want to say it it is but the voice said be exactly like him do exactly like him it was like be or do but So when I heard that or when I experienced the voice, I started to observe him and he was shaking, like he had like shivers and he was stuttering and and there was a frenzy. There was a frenzy, a hysteria. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. So I started to apply that at key critical moments over the next 24 hours. And that's how I was able to escape. Because what he saw, well, what I realized that he was actually scared of himself in the mirror Mm. and I became Mm. a mirror and he was like, you're sick, you're sick. You need to be taken care of. Like it, it literally, like because I wasn't crying for help or screaming anymore. Like that wasn't the thing. I was actually just numb, but becoming a mirror and that mirror apparently was terrified. I'd never done that in my life.
0: Talk about how that changed your perspective of the world after the fact.
1: Well, you know, it was really interesting because, and this is why life is incredibly intricate, right? It's so colorful and it's so diverse. Like, I had been lucky to never experience abuse whatsoever. I had no idea, like, absolutely no clue what it is or what it was to live in an abusive household. Very caring parents, very intelligent, loving sisters, a wonderful extensive family, just a happy way of living. We might not have been rich or millionaires or whatever, but we had a very culturally rich, diverse environment, a lot of love and a lot of care. And so when that happened, all of a sudden, it broke my bubble. It broke my bubble in the sense, oh my God, if I'm experiencing this right now, what are other women experiencing in other countries of the world? Because I've read about these countries that have no systems, no welfare systems, no 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 societal structures in the police systems and this and that. If I'm experiencing this right now, what are these women in a developing country? What are they experiencing? You know, at the time, we would say a third world country. Now we say developing nations. But at the time, my, my first thought with those words at the time were like, what are these women experiencing in India, and in Nepal? Like, what's going on there? What's going on in Africa? Because if I'm experiencing this now, and there's not much to do about it, because even in France, the laws and the structures are not supporting women, what's happening over there? And so what it did, is it, it broke my bubble of compassion meaning it opened my heart. It opened my, my realization. I was like, shit, people are suffering. Yes, I see it on the news. Yes, my father's into politics and debating. Yes, we debate about it. But have I had, had I ever felt it? Have I actually felt the suffering rather than watching it on the news? And this time, I was able to experience the suffering through my own suffering. And that's when I was like, I have to do something about this. Because if my suffering is just one drop in the ocean of human suffering then i cannot be blind to this there's no way i will turn my back to this
0: i have a question and, and this may or may not be relevant to the conversation but i'm just curious whatever happened to that guy like, Does your dad go out and look for him did you not tell anyone uh-huh. did you tell everyone like what was the aftermath of, all so, of that because so- i, I want to go and kill this guy you know And I'm just hearing about it just now.
1: (laughs) He actually passed away years later. He passed away. But what happened was, is that he was very well, like if this would have happened now with the Me Too, I would say that there's no way he would have survived. But back in the day, which is 20 years ago, there was a lot of structures that supported men in certain positions to get away with certain things. And that's what happened, which means it's horrible. I mean it's obviously horrible for people like I and and girls like I, but there was a whole thing that came out years later, driven by another woman, young woman, about people in that environment, in that place. I'm not I'm not naming because I just kind of don't want to bring it all up. But the guy basically managed to escape a sentence, but he was then mentally declared ill and he couldn't work anymore. And then he passed away from cancer. That's the story. But yes, my father did want to go off after him. I had to leave the country. I had to go undercover for a year. When I say undercover, meaning nobody finds me. So I was living in another country. My family were obviously really distraught and it led to my whole spiritual journey.
0: Yeah, you ended up in New Zealand.
1: I ended up in New Zealand, yeah.
0: And you would not have been in New Zealand had that not happened.
1: Yeah, yeah. that not happened.
0: No. Talk about New Zealand. You were having a lot of internal struggles and you saw this thing in the newspaper.
1: Yeah, that was really fun actually when I look back at it. You know, there was no light at the end of my tunnel.
0: <laughs> right. Well, your, oh, your yeah. grandmother was in New Zealand. That's why you went there, my, right? My grandfather,
1: my grandfather. He had okay. a he had a house there because his his wife was actually a, a professor at one of the universities. And so they happened to be there and it just really worked geographically for what I was going through. So family support system. But what was interesting is that they had, you know, nobody knows how to, I don't know if, if I think it happens in every family, but once there's a trauma happen, there's even a taboo to talk about it in the family, right? So I was also dealing with that. It was very hard for anyone to comprehend. And why? also another thing, yes, I did leave because I I didn't feel safe. There was a lot of things going on, a lot of intricacies with law and this and that. So I left. But also the fact that every time I looked into my parents' eyes, I would see so much pain Mm. and so much suffering that it was so unbearable for me to even like, I had to make them feel good and then take care of me. And I'm like, I can't do that. I just, I, I can't. I just cannot. It's like, I don't even understand what this suffering is. I get that something occurred, but I'm still suffering. I don't understand why I'm still suffering. So that's why New Zealand was a godsend because I was able to isolate myself, even if you shouldn't be alone in certain times, but sometimes you need to be away from people who know you so well, so that Mm -hmm. you're not stigmatized in who you are. So you can expand on who you are. And that's what ended up happening. And I was already in New Zealand for a week and I hadn't even walked out of the house. I couldn't look in the mirror. I was crying. I was shaking. I was, I was, was a wreck. You know, I was literally experiencing PTSD and I didn't want to go on medication. That was one thing that I was, it, it, you know, it works for a lot of people. My uncle who's a doctor was like, this is what you're going to do. And I was like, no, I just don't feel that I can do that because if I numb myself right now, I will not understand the root of my suffering.
0: Where did you get this awareness from though? I mean, were people in your family, had you been meditating or never, exposed no. to it at all or any no. of this st- no. expansive spiritual concepts?
1: No, nothing. Like absolutely nothing. I mean, other than that my grandfather actually was super religious and wanted to be a priest, but we never spoke about meditation and I mean, the only thing I can think of is that I did study Shakespeare and Shakespeare for me is like a master of understanding human behavior. So for me, every time I read Shakespeare and the tragedies, it was so interesting because I was reading them, experiencing them, acting in them. And I was like, is this real? You know, I was like, God, these people are going through shit, you know, <laughs> it's like, I was like, wow, I mean, they're little complicated. But because, like I told you, I've been born up in a beautiful environment, mentally, physically, spiritually, even if there was no meditation, but it was sane, like a sane world. I couldn't almost believe what was going on in in Shakespeare's plays, at least the the topics, right? And then when this thing occurred to me, I was like, yeah, wow, okay. Let me understand the, the structure of a tragedy. And the structure of a tragedy is what I've been studying for the last five years, is that there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. There is always a next day. There is always like the last page and the sun rises in every tragic play. And I was like, okay, so where is my sun? I know I can get through this. So that was my first self-awareness, if that makes sense. It wasn't a scripture. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the Vedas. It wasn't the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> it wasn't like everything that we love now that I'm like literally like ingurgitating every day <laughs> with. But it was something that was the only thing I could relate to was Shakespeare at that time. So yeah so I didn't take any medications I didn't want to it was a choice and I was like I need to get to the root of this pain I tried to look at brain surgery because I thought the pain was, was my 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 parents and my my uncle like brain surgery what no that doesn't work like that I was like yeah but I feel like I'm in pain so where is it okay where is this pain and he couldn't answer
0: Do you have anyone you confided in? Like do you have a best friend back in France that you were talking to on a regular basis? Who were you talking to? Who are you processing this with at the time? So,
1: I didn't process it with anyone. I had a journal. I had two journals actually. I've never said this. So, I had a journal that I was writing to my best friend every day. And then I had a journal I was writing to myself. And those were the only two interactions I would talk about my inner journey. I spoke about it to nobody else. So actually, I was really sitting with myself. Like I, At least for me, I needed to experience loneliness somehow, solitude. Like I needed solitude to start understanding what this thunder of pain was. And so that's how I, that's how I started writing actually.
0: So that newspaper, where, did you subscribe to the paper? Your granddad got so the paper? So this is
1: hysterical. So cut to local gazette comes through the the mail. I still haven't left the house. It says, free your mind, body, and spirit, a little, you know, Asian looking man on this picture that's depicted and, and all dressed in white free your mind, body and spirit. And I was like, wow, well, free your mind, definitely need it. Body. Okay. I get it. Spirit. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I was like, no idea. So I call this number from the landline and it's a, a, a lovely, I can tell with the accent, a Chinese woman on the phone. She's like, no, it's free for you. You can come. I was like, I have no money. I'm a student. It's like, no, no, you come to central park at this time. And I was like, okay. So I went, it was the first time I was leaving the house and as if there was a hidden camera somewhere. I was like, okay, this is a cosmic joke. I didn't even know the word cosmic at the time. So I was like, yeah, this is a joke. And there's this man sitting literally under a tree, under a tree with this music coming out of a stereo cassette. And it doesn't sound very good (laughs) because it's just not that portable radios at the time. And I'm like, what is this? And this, this guy sitting down like with that lotus position and obviously I knew about the lotus position because you see that in movies karate kid and whatnot and I was like okay well this is interesting and he didn't speak English obviously I still do not speak Chinese and he just asked me to sit next to him like literally patted the ground and I sat there and he just said do like me and I was like do you like you and so same thing I started to observe him and he started to show me how to the few qigong. Techniques that just like moving the hands, but we were always sitting down. And I tried to understand what that meant, and I could start feeling energy, but I didn't really comprehend. And then we would just sit in that meditation poster for for two hours. And I did it for two hours every day from then onwards.
0: Mr. Miyagi sitting underneath a tree. Yeah. Was he by himself? Or was there any social proof of other people who were doing this? Or literally,
1: just and this woman. There was this like Chinese woman who was kind of like trying to like get people off the street to sit next to him. I mean, it was a very bizarre thing, and so I was the first one, which was very bizarre, and that's why I thought it was a bit of a joke because obviously I'm not a pro, so I had no idea what this was. And then over year, uh, over, not over years, it did feel like years, but over the next following weeks, I did it every day for three months, but the next following weeks, it kind of was like a Forrest Gump situation where, and I love that film, but it was like one person, oh, there's one person, then there's another person, and then there's another person, and next thing we know, it's raining, and we're still outside, and we're like 20 people you know, and I'm on the front row with the Chinese master. And it was just so it was beautiful, because I would not let that go. I went every day even started practicing at home. And you know what the truth is, I didn't even know it was meditation light. Like, I didn't even know because we couldn't speak about it.
0: (laughs) Did your inner voice, that hidden voice that you talk about, did it? Is that what was prompting you to go there in the first place? Do you recognize any of that in hindsight? Or what was it that Who's guiding you?
1: It was that. Oh God, you know what? It or was
0: meant? it the pain? Was it the pain that was guiding? You?
1: you know what? It was. It was the pain, but it was also. Remember, I kept. I keep on saying freedom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That word, free. When I saw that word, free your mind, body, and I was like,
0: <gasps> ah, that was one of your key words from it your was like that soul contract.
1: Free. Yes, I was like, oh my God, freedom, freedom. Get me out of this body, this mind that's torturing me right now, Spirit. I have no idea what it is, but free that. Yeah, that works. You know, I
0: watched the movie Tenant. Have you seen Tenant?
1: No, I haven't seen it yet.
0: I'm on a no complaint fast right now, so I'm not going to comment about the quality (laughs) of the movie. But what you just said reminded me of something. So the reason it's called Tenant is because that's a word. The main character who's like going through all this crazy stuff, he gets told that if you say this word in these crazy situations, then it can either help you or it may do the opposite. So he works it into his conversation. But it just reminds me of that whole, like the concept of you potentially being born into this lifetime with this word, like whenever you see the word free, pay attention, right? And your soul kind of integrates that. And then it kind of guides you to these different places. And your dad kind of helped to create the foundation for it in your childhood. And so this looks like one of the milestones along that Mm -hmm. spiritual journey of freedom. In any case, so you went back for three months and you meditated every single day. day. Talk about the change that that occurred over those three months in your brain and elsewhere.
1: It was so incredible. Because you know what was interesting? Because I had no expectations. You know, nowadays, you know, meditation, is, as, as you know, as we know, it's, it's kind of like everyone can have access to meditation or has a preconceived idea of it. 20 years ago, I had no preconception other than I was like, okay, this is phony. This is weird. But I didn't know what the positive effects of meditation were because there was no scripture anywhere other than if you have to read the Bhagavad Gita, there's no way. I had no idea what that was. So my Westerner, you know, my Western mind, was like I have no idea what this is, but after the first session already, there was just something different. I opened my eyes and the light was different on the trees like i because I, I remember looking at the tree and and just seeing a sparkle in the light that i I hadn't sensed before, because I was probably so into my suffering, like literally <laughs> like blinded by it. And so that was interesting. And then after like a week, I wasn't really looking so much over my shoulder when I walked down the street. I didn't have a mobile phone. I refused to have phones after that because of just the the harassment and the the threats and the life threats. There were a lot of things going on. And so I, I didn't have a mobile device. And that was great, actually. But what was interesting was I was not scared in the street so much anymore. I wasn't always looking behind my back in the beginning when I was quote-unquote sitting under the tree with the the Chinese teacher, I would sometimes open my eyes and go like this, oh, my God, because this is not a public square, so people were walking by. It's not like, oh, we're in a lovely dojo or in a temple. No, 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 we're a shopping centre, okay? So it's not like there's incense flowing. No, none of that, okay? This is like you're sitting on the grass okay this grass that's nice but you know <laughs> this you can hear the ice cream truck the people walking down the chatter like there's a lot of noise and you're exposed you're in public and and I remember opening my eyes and being like oh my god this is so embarrassing like guys there's going to be guys looking at me like I felt like violated even with my eyes closed of, of people just looking at me but then that all started to subside and at home I was I was doing it as well. I was sitting in my bed and just sitting up. And at one point, I think it was like at the second month in, I journaled all of this. So I, I'll I'll have the precise I don't know if I go back to it. But I think it was in the second month, I started to experience the running of my blood through my veins. The inner sensation of actually hearing or feeling, it's not even hearing, it's feeling, experiencing. How fast my blood is pumping through the veins, and I remember, I was like, "Wow, that's that's fascinating." You know, I. I it, it, but every time I opened my eyes, I was seeing the light differently. I was mm-hmm. seeing objects differently. I was not crying. That's another thing. After a week, I started. I wasn't crying as much because every night I was crying. Then it was like, maybe just once a week, or you know, and it would come. I would get triggers, but they were not defining me. I wasn't mm-hmm. prisoner of the triggers anymore. And that so, happened without speaking. Like the guy wasn't speaking to me.
0: You said because of that, you were the perfect student. Yes. <laughs> because you had no idea what the hell you were doing. So you exactly. Open to whatever the experience was. But having had that experience in contrast with the thing that happened to you back in France.
1: Yes.
0: And you're now, what, 17, 18 years old. Yeah, how were you thinking about success at that point? Because you're on this track to becoming an actor, right? So obviously, there's your plays, you have Hollywood, like, but you also have this self healing journey. Where do you see s- success in your life at that age? If you were going to project ahead, maybe ten or fifteen years to where you are right now?
1: It's a really interesting question because when I was suffering with that extreme suffering, I was incapable, incapable of acting whatsoever, meaning there was not even a thought of success there. I experienced my life changed and I'm doomed. I'm doomed to this pain. And if I'm not free of it, I'm going to have a fucking miserable life. I'm sorry for my language, but that's how I felt. I was like, I I'm going to experience a miserable outcome. And that's not how I want to live. Because if you've got to live life, you have to live it fully. And I want to be barefoot walking down the street. And so I I, literally, I was like, I don't want to be confined, you know, confined. And I'm confined right now by this thing that happened to me that stopped me in my tracks. So I wasn't thinking of success. I was thinking Or
0: success was getting this trauma out of my body. So I can be free again.
1: Exactly. The six exactly. So I was like, and so what was interesting was that it, it coupled with, I think it was the second or third month in my meditation, quote unquote, still didn't know I was doing meditation. So it's important because now we use it all the time, but it's important to understand that I had no idea what we were doing. But in that space, that silence, I was able to see my bare feet on a stage. And at that point, I was like, okay, I'm ready. And so I just Mm. looked in a local newspaper, saw local auditions, and I booked two, one in a musical and one in a Shakespeare play. And that was the beginning of me coming back into something that I wanted to do. But I knew that I could not operate from pain. I was incapable and I also knew that it's very easy to numb pain and I also refused to do that so I don't know why I just think that it's not that we've had alcoholics in a family or or anything of all that but I just knew I couldn't operate from pain if I'm a creative being I don't need to create from stimulants whether it's painful stimulants of your own mind, whether it's pills or alcohol or drugs. I just feel that our potential is far more than just what that is. Those things Mm -hmm. do. Yeah. It might be a great buzz for a second, but how long is that buzz? So I was self-aware in that sense.
0: After those three months, you stop going every day. And then between then and I guess a few years later, you landed your first role in a movie. Sure. Was that the one in India that took you to India?
1: It was the first official co-production between France and India, which was a big deal at the time, and I was the lead one of the leads and that took me to India to go on tour and you know be on TV shows there and promote the film and it was
0: and you had a kid at that time
1: I did. I had a kid very early on, so
0: you were a very new mother. Very,
1: yeah, and I think it was a response to be on. I mean, obviously, my son's here and he's going to be 17 next month, and you know, it's kind of crazy. But I think the trauma, um, the event just really put me in touch with my impermanence like I could die tomorrow, kind of. And so, for some reason, I also needed to feel safe, I needed to experience safety. And um, there are so many levels to trauma and to the unraveling of trauma. And one of the experiences that I needed was I needed to feel safe. And so it led into me getting married shortly after. I mean, two years after the trauma, meeting this this man who then became my husband. We divorced later because I I realized that the relationship was still based on trauma. And once that that aspect of feeling safe healed, I was like, I don't need to be in this anymore. So yes, I mean, it's, it's, that's what I mean. Trauma is fascinating. It, it can construct your life, but you can liberate from the construction if you own it fully.
0: And you made some time to study Tibetan Buddhism while you were in India shooting.
1: Yes, actually the, the story still starts in New Zealand. So I'm in New Zealand. We just finished this session of meditation. And I love this part of the story, actually. And I wake up and on the other side of this park in the middle, you, there's this woman in orange, robe, or at least I think it's a woman from afar, but she's got short hair. And I was like, okay, I don't know what this is, a monk or nun, I don't know. But she comes closer and she's wearing a beautiful jade green Maori stone that's so thick. I'm like, wow. And before even saying hello, I touch it. And I'm like, oh oh my God, I've just touched someone. I don't know, like, this is strange. Oh, I'm so sorry. And she's like, no, 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 we were meant to meet. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. I don't know, like, if I'm meant to meet anyone. (laughs) (laughs) My mind, that triggers my mind. I'm like, okay, this is weird. She's a stranger. I don't know this person. And she's like, no, no, my name's Karma. I was like, "Okay, karma, you got me." Like, this is the biggest cosmic joke that I've ever heard. This is a joke. Like, like, come on, you know. And she's like, "Oh, my name's Karma." I was like, "Okay," and she asked for my number, and I don't know why I give it to her, but I do, and that's the first time I've given my number to anyone since the event. Okay, since the trauma. So big deal. Obviously, I regret it five minutes later. I'm like, why did I get my number? (laughs) And I'm walking home, and now I'm, like, not walking home peacefully. I'm, like, walking home with, like, why did I do this? Hopefully, she'd lost a piece of paper. Yeah, she looks like she's a messy person, looks like she's lost. You know, like, I'm thinking all these scenarios, which are driving me insane. So for a week, I'm thinking about this woman. And then the following week, I get a phone call Friday evening. I always remember Hi, it's Karma. I was like, "Oh, hi." She's like, "Hey, what's your address?" I was like, "What do you mean? What's my address?" I'm coming to pick you up. I'm like, "No, you're not." She's like, "Yes, I am." I was like, "Oh my god, why?" She's like, "I want to introduce you to the Maori queen, the queen of the Maoris." And I was like, "What do you mean the Maoris have a queen?" Yes, they have a queen. I was like, "But I don't even I haven't even met a Maori. They're all around you, honey. You have to look." I'm like, "Oh my god." So I, I have no idea. Same thing. Completely oblivious. anything that she's saying to me she's like get dressed it's the coronation of the queen I want I have a feeling you have to meet the queen (sighs) so here I am thinking do I accept do I and and I had accepted but I just didn't know how to deal with that so I get dressed in a formal manner and she comes and picks me up in a hippie van literally with flowers and you know the whole like and I'm like okay this is I was just like, whoever's constructing my reality right now, whether I believe in God or not, they're making fun of me. Okay. People are making fun of me and it's not funny anymore. So I was really, I have a very strong inner dialogue. And so she started to speak to me for about an hour and we were heading into the dark and there's, because in the bush and in, in New Zealand, once you leave the, the city, the town, there's no lights. So all I could see was the headlights It was dark and I was starting to have PTSD. I literally started to think that she was kidnapping me, that she was gonna take me to a place where a bunch of Mari men were gonna rape me and that that I should have listened to God the first time, that God actually wanted me to die. And so this time, this is it, like I have to die. So I was going through this and she was talking to me apparently very elaborately, but I was obviously not listening. And we arrive in front of these beautiful carving, terrifying gates, beautiful sculptures now I, with hindsight. But at the time, I'd never seen really Maori art. And it's all with these faces and very wrathful looking figures and carvings. And I was like, what is this? They're be- definitely going to you know, chop me up. And I'm in the outback. Nobody knows where I am. I mean, I'm going to die. This is it. God wanted me to die. I should have accepted it the first time. I should accept it now. So I had surrendered. I was literally numb when I arrived because my whole like life had gone through my mind for an hour. And she's like, and the gate's open and there's all these beautiful lights, like lanterns, you know, and people are like, you know, laughing and there's instruments and there's so many people. And, and I'm like, what is this? She's like, I told you, this is the coronation of the, were you not listening to me? I was like, who are you? I was like, who are you? <laughs> and she's like, my name's Karma. I represent the Tibetans in exile. And I'm also connected with the Maori tribes. I'm making the introduction for you. I'm like, but why me? She's like, I just felt it. I was like, okay. And so next thing I know, and then, then this huge guy, this Maori warrior, they all look like warriors. So literally that was my perception he's sweating like crazy he's like bare-chested feathers out there tattoos and he takes my forehead and literally puts his nose against mine and I got sweat on my face and I'm thinking wow this is pretty gross with this sweat but but literally I was like this is bizarre but he looked at me he had these it was interesting because he was Mari but he had these blue piercing eyes and he just looked at me like this with our foreheads together on our noses and he was like "Welcome." And then at that point, that was the first time a man had ever touched me. Mm. And I was like, wow, what is this? And it led to my my relationship with this beautiful tribe and, and the people. And she introduced me to some Tibetan masters. And next thing I know, I'm walking around Tibetan Rinpoche's. I didn't even know what a Rinpoche was. And for for those listening, Rinpoche means venerable master teacher in Tibetan, someone of a certain knowledge at a certain height of knowledge and transmission. So I had no idea that these people were super important. Everyone's like bowing down. I'm just walking around with them. I have no idea. And basically that became the seed of who I am today and what I'm learning now and what I've learned for 20 years, which was leading. It's a long answer to your question, but yes. I started the introduction to Tibetan Buddhism in New Zealand just by presence, so no scriptures, no sharing of just presence with these teachers. And what led me to studying it more was when I came back from New Zealand, I started to miss these people. I started to miss a presence that I couldn't find in other people. And I said, I need to find these these, these people, who are they? And so that led me into what is Tibetan Buddhism? And then when I realized what Tibetan Buddhism's main principle is, is freedom from suffering. It's like, how do you, what is the root of suffering? It's in the mind. And so obviously freedom, 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 <laughs> that story, never ending story led me to studying in India extensively with incredible Tibetan teachers and masters. And to this day.
0: Was that what informed the founding of conscious intent, that idea of, I think you, you mentioned the story of leaving the ashram one day and seeing these, what you thought was a pack of dogs.
1: Yes. This was in North India, actually. This was in Bihar, in the Bodhgaya. Bodhgaya is where the Buddha got enlightened under the tree, the Bodhi tree. And in the present world, Bodhgaya today is is in the poorest region of India. Poorest region, very hard access to a lot of uh, humanitarian corruption. A lot of charities just come up when there's a, a munlam, which means when there's a group of pilgrims that come to the place, the charities like pop up, like, yeah, we're helping the locals steal the mm. money when the pilgrims leave. So it, that's a lot of, and that and that was happening back in the day then. And so I was leaving the stupa, which is the place of prayer. And I was going back to this little kind of like bed and breakfast. And as I was leaving the Holy shrine, I was walking and it was dusk and normally you have to be there before because there's kind of a curfew, especially 20 years ago. It was quite violent, that area, and dangerous. And as I was leaving, I could see on the horizon that was a group of people or, or dogs. It looks like hyenas or you know, street gods are, are, are dangerous. And I was like, shit, I'm going to get eaten and bitten by these rabies dogs because they're in front of my little bed and breakfast how am i gonna you know and i'm literally i'm praying at that point i was like i need to pray so i started praying but as they approached i realized that they were kids and these were kids who who had polio so they couldn't even stand up and these children were like spiders walking and 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 just knuckling and just begging for food and 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 just love it was just so and pulling on my my sari and the thing and it was just like everything was so surreal and I just started crying I was like I can't I can't this is beyond any of my understanding we're in a holy place and here we have humanitarian casualty and yet we're in the most divine place that everyone in the world at least know of and whether they follow the teachings or not it's supposedly a blessed, place and yet there's so much tragedy and so that led me into to starting working with street kids and I started to go and like okay what is the solution is there a solution uh, what do we need to assess what can we do and that's when I understood all the corruption the pop-up the that all of these things these sex trafficking, you know, routes, the the slave human trafficking routes, you know, the the rag pickers and the the mafia controlling the kids. So even, and then the organ trafficking, and it was just so overwhelming. But at the same time, I was like, no, we, we have to get to the bottom of this somehow. And, you know, we still are as a collective, but, but it definitely triggered my mind because as a practitioner, as you know, when you start doing the work, what it does is it opens your heart. So you cannot mm-hmm. be blind to anything anymore.
0: And you've also said later on, you said that the person who is the activist in the family, the one with the open heart is usually the black sheep of the family. Or the one that's kind of like the outlier. What were your other sisters during all this while you were gallivanting around these yeah, stupas, exactly. stupas in India and, and acting and all of that? Did you, were you close to those guys?
1: Yeah, I mean, we were always close, but they just always like, oh, Gab. Oh, Gab's off on an adventure. Oh, yeah, she's just doing her thing. Yeah, Gab's like, you know, it was always like, she's just doing her thing. We don't really understand it, but she's just doing it. And the thing is, I never ask of anyone to authorize myself what to do. You know what I mean? Like, I have a spontaneous, like, okay, i got to get shit done. I'm going to do it. And this is how I'm going to go about it. And it might be a bad decision, but at least I'm going to fully own the decision, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, and, and so my, my, and they were young, you know, we, th- with the youngest, we're seven years apart and we have three and a half years difference between each sister. And I don't know, we were connected, but, but they just let me be somehow.
0: Did you become vegetarian and take on a spiritual name as well?
1: So I was vegetarian for seven years in my 20s, but I got so skinny and vegan and gaunt (laughs) that it just didn't work for me after a while. (laughs) Yes, I do have a Tibetan name. (laughs) I don't have an Indian name yet, but I do have a Tibetan name. (laughs) (laughs)
0: you stood up at thanksgiving and said everybody my new name is
1: (laughs) exactly my name is like my parents are just like okay whatever like but but everything came full circle with the recent story of my sister
0: let's talk about the offering so you're making you're, you're in the tutors true blood you're doing all these wonderful projects and whatnot raising your son and then you get this was the movie The Offering offered to you or did you help to create?
1: No, I helped that? create it.
0: Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the genesis of, of, of what was called The Offering at the time.
1: Yeah. So that's another very interesting
0: story. So <laughs> I love it. I'm going to be short. But I, no, but it's I'm fine. Take your fast. time.
1: It was, it was about 12 years ago now this director, documentary director, who worked with an incredible theater director called Peter Brook. So people who who know who Peter Brook is, he's basically, he was the first theater director to use black actors in Shakespeare. He's an incredible, he's now 90 something. And he's just one of those pioneers, Peter Brook. So when this director approached me and said, listen, I'm a protege of Peter Brook. I'm like, okay, I want to work with this guy. Because that Peter Brook, he wrote a book called The Empty Space, which is all about the stage work. And and now we know in our language, it's all about consciousness. But at the time, I didn't know that that's what he was talking about. So a key Bible for me. So I was like, oh, my God, I have to meet this this director. So we meet. He's like, listen, I, I, I want to talk about a possibility of doing a film with you and another actress. It was scripted. And it's about a couple who lose their child to suicide and they then need to rekindle their love and travel and go to Nepal. And they do selfless work, selfless service work in a leprosy camp. And I was like, okay, so what do you want me to play? And he's like, I would like you to play the second lead in the Nepal part where you're basically, you're the humanitarian you're taking care of the leprosy camp. And so you welcome this Western couple who've gone through this tragedy. It's like, okay, that sounds interesting. The film never got made in how we wanted it to get made, mostly because the producers and in France, unlike the US, in France, you have a strong grant system for filmmaking. And so we were not getting the grants because they came back every time saying that no, child suicide doesn't exist. So I was like, well... That's interesting because most of your films are very depressing. That's true. French films are really depressing. <laughs> and at the time, child suicide wasn't on the radar, but we knew about it. You know, as researchers, we knew, meaning, you know, and not researchers, meaning he he was obviously a researcher, but I was just observing right what's right. going on. And I could see that, you know, there were some issues of suicide around. And so the film never got made, unfortunately. And then I'd say four years ago, the director got back in touch and he said, listen, Gabriella, I really want to do this film, but let's do it completely differently. Let's do it documentary style. You play a mother who's lost their son to suicide and it's all set in LA and we're going to work it from here and we'll build on the story and you go to Nepal and we're not going to do the leprosy camp. You just experience your own grief and how to spread the ashes there and you meet incredible people on the way who explain life to you and death and I was like okay that sounds great actually I was like awesome you know like road movie great let's do it in independent style that's how it started and three months into the shoot because okay so this is an independent movie so we raise money. We shoot. We need more money. We raise more money. It's not a studio movie. This is not the. We don't have that luxury for a certain subject like this, because still at the time, four three years ago, there was still like oh, suicide. It's a taboo subject. It's too depressing. People are not going to want to watch this. You know, there's still that stigma because there's a stigma about suicide. So even content creation is stigmatized. It's kind of horrible. It's like you're stuck right? In terms of financing. And then that's when it got very personal. So as I was creating this project, as I was creating it, our blind site, or I I still call it my blind spot, but maybe you'll have other words for it. My sister wasn't feeling well. And she had called my mother and said, listen, mom, I'm not feeling well. There's something up. I'm just distraught. I, I... I don't know what to do. Do I? I need antidepressants. Should I go? On, should I go on antidepressants? Should, what should I do? Like, my mother was in London with my other sister, and I so happened to be flying into LA to pitch a project to AMA, the Hugging Saint, for my conscious intent company. Right? I was on a flight, and and with Amma, and I thought everyone had this under control because it's okay to not feel okay. It's just like okay, you don't feel well. we we'll, we'll take care of it, but but I think we 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 look at things casually, like "How are you?" Oh, you're not feeling well. That's okay. You'll be better tomorrow. You know, it's it's a casual way of dealing with things because we don't have the language. And that was Friday, and then Saturday morning, I get a Facebook alert. I'm completely jet lagged, and there's a there's a picture of my sister that pops up saying "Missing Persons Report." I'm like, what? Like this is a joke. This is a childhood friend from my boarding school posting a. A picture of my sister saying "missing persons." I'm like, so I call my other sister. I'm like, "What the fuck is going on here?" She's like, "Oh, there's a we can't find Paulette." I was like, "Uh, uh, "What do you mean you can't find her?" What, what, like, I spoke to you guys yesterday. Like, what, what is going on? Like a missing person report after twelve hours. What, what went down? And then I call my parents, and they're literally like jumping on a Eurostar from London to Paris to then to Reims, the other city. And I'm like, I don't understand what's happened. And she's like, well, Paulette didn't get on stage last night. She couldn't play. Her boyfriend played instead of her on stage. And she went back home. And when her boyfriend came back home at 3.40 in the morning, she wasn't there and the door was open. I was like, okay, but maybe she went somewhere else. Like, I don't know. Maybe she's on her way to Paris to my apartment because I still had an apartment there. Like, yeah, we can't find her. Her phone was left. She's just gone. I was like, okay, well, I mean, I don't think there was no note. There was no nothing. She did take her credit card. So we're thinking maybe they had a fight or maybe they just, you know, you don't think about the worst, right, in these situations. You just think it's, it's okay, you know, she went for jogging. That's what she used to do when she had panic attacks. She would go jogging. So like, oh, she probably went jogging. She'll be back. Let's not make this a big deal. And then the police are involved. And they're like, no, we need to find this woman. It's important. She's a public figure. She's a folk singer. She, she, she was a folk singer. And so she did have a little bit of a following. And she wasn't active on social media, but she had a, a niche following. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. And then my parents get a phone call at five in the evening saying that they found my sister. And they found her body. And she was electrocuted 15 meters above ground on an electric tower. And yeah, it is obviously something that none of us were expecting because we felt that we had always been listening to a deeper listening of what she was or who she was or who she is but we realized that she was alone that night and that her panic attack frenzy had led up to this. And she had said to me years before that she says, if she can never get on stage, she will die.
0: Hmm.
1: So she had this very strong mental unease, but it was always catered to by her music She was able to express herself through the music and through the lyrics. And we were like, oh, that's beautiful art. That's beautiful art. But we should have listened more to the meaning of the lyrics. And it's not that it's a bad thing or not, but that's why I say it's a blind spot. Because actually, all of her suffering of this mental illness, we didn't realize she had actually an ongoing mental dis-ease that's very existential, but also was triggered by by a certain way of, you know, sometimes we, we think it was a genetic predisposition coupled with the environmental factors. But she would, if she would still be alive today, she would have been officially diagnosed as bipolar. That's what they said. If she would have survived this crisis, she would have been diagnosed and she would have been able to have more accessible help. But because she was an artist, because she was an incredible self-expressed artist. She was able to channel it out and and share it with the world through her offering, but it was overshadowing the root cause and we were unable to see that it was actually an illness. We thought it was just an, that's just how artists are because we're an artist family.
0: Contrasting with that, you also have been, studying tibetan buddhism which is all about impermanence exactly so you have that perspective but you also obviously have your entire family and friend base and everyone's like all this attention is now like on what paulette just did Mm -hmm. how did you come to terms with your spiritual studies and foundation with what had happened to your sister
1: that's a very good question I think I was the only one in the family to be able to stand, literally stand up, physically and mentally. I had to take care of every logistic possible. I had to speak to the public, write write the speeches from the church. I went to the cremation. I actually was the one who conducted the cremation. And I became the center of the family's backbone to get them out because what one day it was really harmed. I realized that it's not just one suicide, you know, it's not just one departure. All of a sudden the whole family's in the suicidal energy, that suicidal frequency. Like my father wants to die because my mom wants to die. And then my sister's like miserable because she's like, we're all going to die anyway. And I'm like, <laughs> No, because she's like black humor, like, you know, like dark humor all the way. She's like, yeah, well, you're the only one standing, sis. And I'm like, is she,
0: is she still Christian? Like really heavy, heavily Christian at the time?
1: The, the, the Christian one was the dog. Oh,
0: that was Paulette. Okay. Was, okay. Got, okay. Got, it, got it. Got it. Got it. Okay.
1: The other one's like a cynic and just, got it. just like, we're all going to die anyway. Like, what's the point of living now? You know, I was like, oh my God, sister. I was like and wonderfully intelligent, but just very dark humor that is cutting, you know, and and sometimes it's not the time. (laughs) It's just not the time for that humor. But so it was very hard because I, I realized that also I had my son and my son was not different in age. I mean, yes, it was an age different. She was 28. My son was 14, but they were still, they were very close. Like they taught each other guitar, you know, there's a lot of kinship there and I only have an only child and They were always spending time together. So I was like, shit, oh my God, how am I? This is like scarring trauma for a teenager. His aunt has just passed away publicly. It's on the media. It's in the media. We don't understand really. There's so many whys that we cannot answer. And I need to make sure that everyone's okay. And so my teachings kicked in. And this was when actually for the first time, my father said, whatever you're doing, Whatever it is, I don't understand. I've never understood what, I get that you're intelligent. I get that you're smart. But I never understood these rituals of yours because he was anti-religion, right? And I said, yeah, I'm never in, this is not religion. This is spirituality. This is consciousness. And he's like, I just don't want to hear it. But whatever you're doing, your mom looks better. And so I trust you. And so that was the first time that they were able to see everything that I had learned put into practice and to see me not crumble and to see me stand and then become a co-founder of Never Alone, which is our mental health and suicide prevention initiative, to just see that gave them the will to live. And if anything, maybe, maybe what happened to me 20 years ago was supposed to happen so that I could create a resiliency and a true understanding of what human suffering can be and what that means in so many different perspectives so that I can maybe, maybe, just be an embodiment for a second for my family. So maybe that's the why.
0: You became obsessed with mental health afterward and suicide prevention, and you had this opportunity to interview Deepak Chopra with all of this fresh on your heart, and talk about what happened out of that conversation.
1: It was very interesting. This conversation was completely something about something completely different. It was about autism and telepathy and and consciousness and remember my sister died as I was starting the shoot for the offering so and obviously I took a pause I had to take a pause there's no you just have to sometimes in life you have to look at everything and stop so as I was stopping I think this was this was in April so my so almost a year later I was on my way back into the workspace just to start things up again, having spent so much time with my family. And I was asked to do this interview for Deepak Chopra and with this psychiatrist, Dr. Diane Powell, and I accepted it. So I flew into New York to do it, and surprisingly, it was very interesting. I mean, obviously, it was going to be interesting with these two incredible people, but but it, it took a turn where – at the end of the interview, I was able to ask Deepak, I was like, Are you aware that suicide is is really the second cause of death among young adults between the ages of 10 and 34 in the US? He's like, Is are the numbers so high? I was like, Yes, they are. And then I said with a very straight face, he said, Well, my sister died by suicide last year, and I just need to really find a solution to this because there's a lot of things I don't understand. He's like, "Wow, you just said that's so level-headed. It, like that was kind of the, the energy, right?" And and I said, "Well, this is reality." He's like, "Wow, you really understand consciousness." I was like, "Well, twenty years later, I hope at least I'm at the beginning of something."
0: <laughs> did you did you bring that up in most of your conversations? Or w- wondering why did why did you bring that up the Deepak out of the blue?
1: At the end, because. The guy who was filming, who had set up the interview was also the director of, because he had set up an app called Mind Dive, was oh. the, the, the director of the offering. And so he said, he asked me in French, he was like, ask him this question. I was like, really? Yeah, ask him. So he, Deepak couldn't understand what he was asking me in French. Got it. And so I said to him, the but I wasn't going to. I wasn't actually ever going to bring it up. And Bichelle was like, no, bring it up. And that's when we were able to correspond after we finished the interview. And he's like, I want to know more. And I said, actually, I'm filming this documentary, feature, stroke, narration. Maybe you can share some insight. And he was like, I would love to. Do you have anything to show me? And that's when I showed him part of what we had shot, shared more personal story. And he said, This is great. I'll do anything, I'll be in the film. But more importantly, let's create an initiative. Let's create a movement because obviously there's something that needs to to occur. And that's when he introduced me to Punach Machai, who's the the other co-founder of the initiative and and who brought all the technology and all the you know the incredible other facet dimension to the initiative. But that's how it started. Very very simply.
0: Wow, you know, I love that nothing story. Planned.
1: Nothing planned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just an offhanded remark. <laughs>
1: yeah, literally.
0: <laughs> and Deepak, of course, thinks in movements. So yeah. when he hears something that he feels touched by, he's like, "Let's create a movement." And yeah. now, obviously, you know, you on the other hand, you could think, well, "Well, he probably says this to everybody." What gave you the impression that he was serious about this?
1: Deepak has shared in, in multiple ways that now he's in a part of his life where he wants to give back more so than ever before, and he's like, I, I want to be able to." Reach a billion people, that's his foundation, is reach a billion people to a more joyful, sustainable, healthy uh, world. But I want to be able to make sure that they are experiencing joy and mental health and mental well being, because he, he uses more of the word mental well being as the common denominator thread that we should, we should enhance. And so he's like, that, that's essential. And he wants to turn his foundation, which is has always been science-driven and research-driven for everything, meditation, yoga, you know, Ayurveda, looking at all of that. He's like, I want to make sure that that supports humanitarian impact. And so when he, he said it spontaneously, and then we were able to craft what that really meant in practical terms, he was like, I want to make sure that everyone has access to mental well-being tools. And that was the thing for for my sister as well. Like she didn't have access to the right things because of stigma and not the right storytelling. And then where do you go if you need something? Like what is out there? I'm scared. And when you have mental illness plus mental health issues or, or realities, it's not even issues. I'm just saying they're realities, right? You need to be able to feel safe when you're looking for something, for resources. Mm-hmm so it became a whole different want and he's now 74 like he's he's wanting to experiencing humanity through the extension of his being and his seva which is selfless service and that's how he sees this
0: say somebody's listening to this, they're grappling with bipolar. You've described your platform as sort of like a shutterstock of mental health. So just walk us through how that works. Like I'm in my house, maybe on the brink of harming myself. I'm suffering from this disease. What do I do?
1: If you have a telephone... You can access to our emotional AI chatbot. I know AI sounds so like de- dehumanizing sometimes, but mm. this chatbot is actually nicknamed after my sister, Pee-wee, which mm. was her name. And she's available 24/7. She's also connected to therapists, to a suicide hotline if possible, but also takes you to with, through resiliency tools. And there are many different aspects to look at anxiety and stress and and, and all of that. So that's the first thing that you can use spontaneously, and you can use on phone, Facebook. There's different ways, and the data is private. It's important to to say that we're also creating our platform. It's almost ready. It's still still in the works, but our platform, where you go in on this open source platform, and there's so many content creators who are creating content specifically for mental well being. Mental hygiene is a word that we're using a lot because it's how do you create the relationship with self that allows you without stigma without pressure to take care of like how can i wash my emotions how can i take care of my mental well-being that it becomes like physical hygiene and then also we we have this mental space so the mental space that we're co-creating and hopefully, it is is on this Never Alone platform where you can have access, you can watch a short film about someone who's experiencing bipolar, and what their story is. And then at the same time, you can go and see this expert who's there like brain on food, and she's talking about what food would help decrease the symptoms of bipolar that helps you ease what you are having. Okay, so there's there's a lot of cross emergence and there's not one solution. We believe that there is not one unique solution. We have a collective solution for collective problem because this is a collective problem. It's a social responsibility now. And since uh, thanks to or since COVID, we've understood that mental health is actually the only common denominator that we might all share in a way that everyone has mental has a mental space. Everyone has a mental experience. Everyone has access maybe to the knowledge of mental or the distinction of mental hygiene. So how do we make that happen? So that's what Mm. we want to do. And that's the space that we've been creating. We have our second annual Never Alone Summit coming up that are featuring incredible speakers and storytellers and solution bearers. To that, And that's evergreen content as well. Before COVID, we were on high school tours and university tours, literally creating conversations between experts, the youth, the university facilitators. It was incredible. I mean, that was really insightful. So there, there's a lot of, obviously, we can't be in the community right now physically, but once we can get back on the train physically, we're creating all the, these hubs so nobody ever feels alone.
0: You also have a really interesting blockchain technology that incentivizes the best content creators. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes. So I apologize for anyone who's a specialist listening to this on technology. (laughs) I'm more of like the general storyteller, so I'm not a technologist. Punacha would be able to answer this question way more. But what I can say and why I love that we built never alone on Hedera Hashgraph technology, which is a blockchain technology, it allows content to be traceable and also content to be, you know that it's from the right source. So when you view the content as a viewer, you are also gaining a token because you viewed this, because it's, so you've acknowledged the content creator. So you get a token for viewing it and the content creator also gets a, a token because you've seen it and he's given it to you or her. So basically there's an exchange that it will add up and you can then use these tokens to either donating someone who needs therapy on the platform. Some Sometimes you need you know, paid therapy or you need a, a grant for something. As of now, it's called the love in action token. So it basically means how do we create the love in action as a as, as an embodiment, but as an exchange. And it's also a way the token allows you to to make sure what you're seeing is backed by research, you know, as well, because it's important. There's a lot of things that are out there. And some things are great. And sometimes might they, some things might not be so great for your present state. So we want to make sure because mental health, it's an important sensitive topic, we want to make sure there's we're supporting the infrastructure of people already working as therapists, as psychotherapists, as psychiatrists within that realm, and completing that with other mental hygiene tools and self-awareness practices.
0: How are you funding all of this?
1: So we got a grant. We got a grant from Hadera Hashgraph, which is great, and we're raising funds by donations. Where, you know, we're an initiative, so it's a five hundred one c three, so it's it's donation based but we are looking at creating more of a social enterprise structure to allow us to fund this seamlessly with having without having to be start stop start stop because it's like a we want to make sure this is sustainable and that's why the token structure allows us to also make sure that the platform is taken care of
0: itself is there anything you need help with as an organization designers engineers, anything, if anyone's listening to this and they say, I want to yes. be a part of this.
1: Yes, yes, we do. I mean, engineers, for sure, they can get on, <laughs> get on calls in Punacha. Content creators of well, of course, you know, like yourself. You know, like we, we want to make sure that this is truly a way to create free content and yet the content is within a currency so everyone is rewarded. You know, so it's an ecosystem that allows content creators to thrive and the audience to thrive and be engaged and really find what they want and it's all free. this is what I want i, I my dream is that it's a democratized access platform, so we get what we need when we want it, and we can go and get it and have it accessible.
0: a couple more questions for you so How are you thinking about success today?
1: Today, I think success, like now for me, is really about fulfillment, fulfillment of my inner reality. I have such a rich inner reality. I I just want to make sure I don't pass away before all of these things are done because then I'm going to have to reincarnate and come back. To <laughs> I'm like, let me get everything out. Now. You don't want
0: to go back to high school again.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just not in the mood right now. I think like my life's been very complete already. So I just want to make sure I'm not missing anything. <laughs> so I I just think success for me is just making sure all the projects uh, that I'm writing that I see in my mind's eye, whether it's films, documentary series, that all this conscious intent and this conscious content actually finds a home so that Mm -hmm. it inspires people. That's very important for me. And for me, it means everything. I I don't compartmentalize success or the future because I really see my work as a humanitarian with Never Alone and all of the other outreach programs that I've done over the years. And me as an actor and, a, and a, uh, I would say producer maybe director at one's point, I just find it all one, and my son's now big enough to lead an independent life of his own very soon and so I feel my success now is going to be linked to my freedom of expression and so let let's see where that takes me.
0: Beautiful and let's say somebody listening to this has lost a loved one. From suicide, what would you if you get a chance to have a conversation with them about that was there is there anything you would tell them on how to move forward?
1: You know it might sound cliche, but I just want to tell them that they're not alone that your suffering is our suffering, and your suffering is connected to humanity's suffering and what that does is that it can fill you and drive you into an incredible force of inspiration for the people who are left behind so if you're listening to this or you're hearing this and you need something yes grief is grief grief has a time of its own it has a rhythm. There's no need to rush through the rhythm. But when you experience it fully and you look at it straight in the eye with your being and your sensations and everything, then you can start to experience your presence that is beyond grief. And that presence has a role. And that presence has a, it's not for nothing that you've experienced that right now. So your uniqueness in your situation is connected to a higher vision. And that vision is for you to to be triggered into what can you do Mm. for the people who are suffering even more.
0: It reminds me, I, I was once in a relationship with someone who suffered from depression and some suicidal tendencies. And it was my first time being so close to it. Because you know if you're not ever exposed to it, you kinda I have these sort of stereotypical ideas about it, and you just see how it could happen to literally anyone so anyway, flash forward this past October, one of my best friends committed suicide, mm. but he had been suffering or living with a mental disease for several months, and I got a chance to interact with him. And I feel like because I had been through the other experience, Mm. I was able to fully show up.
1: Yeah, wonderful.
0: For my friend, even though it didn't end in the way that he wanted it to end or anyone else wanted it to end, but it was easier to process because I didn't feel like I held back at all. You know, so I I think, I think what you said is really important to understand that it's it's all happening for a higher purpose and also the connection you made with what happened to you at 17 and and, and what happened to your family or around Paulette so anyway I just want to thank you for being so transparent with your journey I certainly got a lot out of it I'm sure the people listening to this are getting a lot of right. a lot of a lot of a lot of things out of this story a lot of inspiration compassion and all of those things and normally I like to loop the conversation back around the childhood and talk about your activity in comparison to how your life has sort of unfolded since then. But you, you actually did a really great job of tying it all together <laughs> with, with the freedom theme, which is something I probably would have done. So I want to thank you for that, for doing my job for me. But, you know, <laughs> apart, the idea of the storytelling, the storytelling of this podcast is to draw the connection and show that the dots usually connect in hindsight no matter what what lit up your heart when you were a kid and what you did when you were a teenager and all the other experiences and yours is just you know i think it's you've made it clear for everyone and hopefully whatever anyone listening to this is going through they can also come away from this conversation with a sense of purpose behind what they're experiencing as well so thank you very much for Life. Stepping into your power and using your story for good. It's really important. Thank you. Um, Thank
1: you well, be for being such an amazing facilitator of Safe Space. You know, you've really created a wonderful cradle for, for me to be able to express myself the way that I have. So I appreciate that a lot.
0: Thank you for listening to my interview with Gabriella Wright. You can get more information about Gabriella's organization, Never Alone online at neveralone.love. How awesome is that domain? Neveralone.love. And to get the show notes and a transcript of our conversation with all the links and everything, you can go to lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're there, you can sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email. And you can also order my book of inspiration called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration which comes out May 25th. And please don't forget to leave your rating or review so we can help other people find these inspirational stories. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. Your review could be the one that inspires someone to give this episode a listen and listening to it could end up changing their life for the better. So thank you in advance for taking that time to leave a review on the Apple podcast app. All you do is click on the name of the podcast and scroll down to where it says ratings and review and leave your rating or review. Super simple. In the meantime, I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and by all means, keep taking those leaps of faith. If no one has told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote That's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.